0: This morning we're going to spend the majority of our time in John chapter 9. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's one of what we call the Gospels. I don't know if you guys are into documentaries. We are at my house big time. My favorite part of every documentary is usually in the last quarter of the movie, you finally get an interview with either the CEO that stole all the money or the whistleblower from the corporation or the person who made the big scientific breakthrough. And it's that face-to-face time with the camera that's so special. You can listen to a narrator tell the story, you can pick up on bits and pieces, of, especially if it's kind of a crime documentary of these things that have happened in culture and now they're being made into a movie. But it's that moment when somebody looks in the camera and tells you exactly what happened that's so special. And that's what the Gospels are. The first four books in the New Testament are eyewitness accounts. They're people who were in the room when it happened, telling you exactly what Jesus said, where he was standing, where his eyes were looking, who was around him, how did he he feel, what was it like in that space? So if you'll go to John nine, if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to do that. Feel free, if you wanna use a tablet, your phone, whatever you have with you, that's great. You'll have some time until we get there. While you go to John nine, I want to read to you from John chapter 19. We gathered about 48 hours ago on Good Friday, and we observed the day that Jesus died, the death that had to happen for there to be a resurrection today. And we read these verses from John 19, and so I just want to pick it back up from there. I'm going to read a little bit from John chapter 20, and then we're going to go back to John 9. So at the very end of Jesus' life, he's hanging on the cross. This is John 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, his role, his responsibility, his ministry was complete. He did what he came to do. Jesus said in order to fulfill the scriptures, the prophecies from the Old Testament, he cried out, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there near the three crosses. And so they, excuse me, the centurions, those who were looking on, took a sponge and they filled it with sour wine and they put it on a branch and they reached it up to him. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. and He bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. That was Friday. That's where we left things, if you were with us at our Good Friday service. Jesus died. And his death is the power for us to pass through our own deaths into life with him. His death could be good news on its own. But today, the resurrection brings the gospel to life by not only putting Jesus' death on offer in place of our death, but his life as well. The fact that he came back from death means his life is more powerful than any life anybody's ever lived. No other life has ever been able to conquer death on its own. And Jesus was. I want to now read two more passages from the next chapter in John, John 20. This is after Jesus has died. He's been buried for three days. This is an amazing moment. Again, I think of this in the sense of a documentary. This is like an eyewitness account of exactly what happened. This will be John 20 beginning in verse 11. A woman named Mary, one of Jesus' apprentices, comes. Verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside of Jesus' tomb. And as she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. Because it's not like a grave dug in the ground like we do in the West. It's sort of a cave, and it's low to the earth, and there's a small opening. So she looks inside as she's weeping, and she sees two angels in white. Now, we think angels, and we think like naked babies with wings. That's not exactly how the Bible seems to lay that out. These seem to look like people to her. And they say to her in verse 13, Woman, Or ma'am, we might say. It It sounds a little disrespectful for them to call her woman, but they meant it in a nice way. Woman, why are you weeping? They ask her, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she says, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. It's obvious to her the body is not in the tomb anymore. Having said this, she turns back around to look behind her, and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, again, woman, you can think, ma'am. Why are you weeping? Who is it that you're looking for? I, I, I feel that Jesus probably has a little bit of a half grin on his face as he's asking these questions. Thinking that he must be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if it's you who has carried him away, just tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him. I'll take care of the body. Like, you don't have to tell anybody. This doesn't have to be a big deal. But he's my Lord. Where is he? And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary in a way that he had said hundreds, maybe thousands of times before in her life as she followed him around as part of his disciples. And she turns to him and she says in Aramaic, their local language, Rabboni, teacher, the name that she had used for him all those years that they had been together. And we can assume that she jumps on him, right? Because look at verse 17. Jesus says, don't cling to me, (laughs) for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm not done yet. But I go now to my brothers and I say to them, I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God, to your God. Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Can you imagine two days after believing that this whole experiment that Jesus of Nazareth has been doing in Judea, that it's over, that it failed from the perspective of the disciples, he's dead. Your rabbi dying, especially being punished and killed as a criminal, is not a way to, like, that's not a, a clear win for you if you're following Jesus. You're not thinking, oh, this makes obvious sense. That we knew he was going to die. Every rabbi dies, right? They, they die as a criminal at the end, and that's how we know we really stuck it to the man. No, the disciples, if you pay close attention to them, are terrified. They think that by association, they're next. The next, very next weekend, they expect to be crucified just like Jesus was, to be killed because they followed him. Mary has made peace in her heart with the idea that he's gone. That's why she's weeping. She's not weeping because she missed him and knows he's coming back. She's weeping because she thinks he's gone forever. And simply having that body just to bury and honor is all she really has left to gain closure. And then she sees him, and he's alive, and he says her name. And she jumps on him, and he says, no, now is not the right time. I still have work to do, but tell everybody that you meet that you've seen me. And so she does. She goes to the other disciples, and she tells them, I have seen him. If we move a little bit further in John 20 to verse 26, about a week has gone by. Mary has given her testimony to the other disciples. If you read the story closely in the four Gospels, they're not convinced. They kind of think maybe she's crazy. There's probably an element of the role that women played in that society, keeping them from taking her seriously to some degree. But look at verse 26. Eight days later, after this encounter, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors to the house were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And John, who wrote John's gospel, has no explanation for that. It just happened. And Jesus said, peace be with you, which is like still probably pretty scary. If you didn't think he was going to be in the room, he could have just said, boo. But he said, peace be with you. And they're like, what? You're here. It's 27. He said to Thomas, who's been doubting previously, here, put your fingers into my hands. Feel it. Feel the wound. See that hole? That was where the nail was. It's me. It's really me. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God, feeling Jesus' wound in his side, feeling the wounds in his hands. He realizes this is Christ. Thomas' moment is hands in the wounds. Mary's moment was hearing her voice cried out by Jesus. Jesus says this then, very interesting, very end of his ministry, verse 29. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He just kind of drops that on the disciples in the room and John doesn't have a lot of commentary about what that means. None of the gospels really dig into the weeds of what Jesus is talking about to have not seen but to have believed. Obviously everybody in this story gets an opportunity to see. They get that moment where the person in the documentary looks at the camera and tells you the whole story. You get the whole truth from them. I believe that Jesus is alluding to us when he talks about that. To me, this is where sort of the train car of our lived reality hooks up to what Jesus is doing in 30 A.D. in the ancient Near East. He's talking about people that are going to be able to believe who have not had the chance to hear Jesus audibly say their name at a tomb. People who've never had the opportunity to physically put their fingers in the wounds at Jesus' side and in his palms. But if we're careful and we pay close attention to the story of Jesus' life, we'll realize that you and I are not actually an anomaly. Again and again, Jesus encountered people who could not see him, who would never see him, and yet did believe and had faith, and that's where I want us to go today. So hopefully you've had a chance now to go to John chapter 9. We're going to do our very best in the next few minutes to work through the majority of this story and to understand one of the greatest encounters between a person who had nothing to offer Jesus and Jesus who saw him and loved him and healed him. So we'll start now in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus passed by... He saw a man, they're in Jerusalem, he saw a man who had been born blind. And the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents in order to make him born blind? They had assumed, their worldview dictates that if you have a physical problem, it's a symptom of a spiritual issue. Jesus answers them and says, it was not that this man sinned and it was not that his parents sinned. but but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was born blind, so that God would be able to heal him and take the credit for that. Jesus says in verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me, which is God the Father. He sent Jesus. We must do that while it is day, because night is coming, a time when no one will be able to work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with his spit and then he anointed is what the ESV says but you can think of that as smeared that's our modern word for that he smeared the man's eyes with mud and he said to the man go and wash in the pool of siloam which means sent and so the man went and he washed and he came back seeing if we were to go back one more chapter and we won't but i just want to give you some context jesus has just left the temple He's been standing in the lobby of the bank at the temple where people come to trade money and to figure out exactly how many pennies and dimes and quarters they owe to God. And he's been teaching for a little while and he's offended quite a few people. I don't think he went there to be offensive, but the folks who are around don't like him. He doesn't fit into their religious system. He doesn't look like them. He doesn't talk like them. And so they begin to persecute and attack him to the point that when he finally calls them out at the, begin, at the end of John chapter eight, they try to kill him with stones. They pick up rocks, off the ground, in the temple, and are prepared to stone him to death, which is sort of a ritual public execution model. Well, Jesus is Jesus, and it wasn't time to die yet, and so John 8 says he just slipped away. We don't know what that means. Maybe he did the sort of ninja smoke bomb move. I don't know, but he was gone. They couldn't find him. All of a sudden, they were just all facing each other with rocks in their hands, and Jesus had left. Where we pick it up now in John chapter 9, Jesus is walking away from the temple, probably out to the edge of Jerusalem, most of the time when Jesus did ministry in the city of Jerusalem, he stayed outside the city at night. So he would walk in and walk out, and a lot of the teaching that the disciples record in their gospels happens as they're strolling together, sort of like you and I might catch up on the phone while we're driving in the car, or we might have a conversation while we're out shopping together. Jesus' teaching is rarely in this sort of formal setting like we think of with him on the stage and everyone else in a seat. They're just walking around. So it's normal for the disciples to see a man sitting on the ground and to go, okay, we've been talking about applied theology for a few days, Jesus. What about this guy? Let's make the rubber meet the road here. What happened to him? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Jesus, of course, flips that paradigm on its head and communicates that God's sovereignty is in play and that the exact timing of Jesus meeting that man and healing him has been the plan from the beginning. It's part of why God would allow him to live with this disability all this time. This man who Jesus meets is healed, right? We saw that in that last verse that we just read. Now, what's interesting is we're going to skip a few verses, but I'm going to catch you up here. When he comes back to the street where he has begged, where he has lain all of his life, people don't believe it's him. It's amazing. He comes back to his neighbors. He comes back to the same street corner he sat on, probably since he was an infant, where he's rattled a cup and asked people for money, just enough to eat. And everybody is asking each other. It's sort of like the talk of the town among stay-at-home moms and dads that are home on their lunch break. They're like, did you see that guy walking through town? He looks just like that beggar that used to sit on the street corner and be blind. These people have no category for the fact that it could be the same guy and now he's been healed. This has never happened before. And so the man, it's amazing if you pay close attention to the story, he's going around saying to his neighbors, it's me, I'm that guy. And they're like, "Mm, I don't know, I'm not sure. You look like him, but you can see and he couldn't. And the guy's like, I know, isn't that amazing? And they're like, no, something's fishy here. We're not into this. This doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So here's what they decide to do. Instead of celebrating that this man was healed and given his sight back. They drag him to the religious council. They go and interrupt a meeting of religious thinkers who sit around and talk about stuff and never do anything all day long. And they say, look at this man who can see now. Is he a liar? And this man is like, what is going on? Like, can I just go back and pick up my blanket and go home and tell my parents that I've been healed, please? They put him in front of the the religious leaders and they cross-examine him. The very first question that they say to this guy is, well, if this Jesus of Nazareth healed you, where is he? Do you think this man who has never seen anything before today in his entire life is going to be able to give you directions on where Jesus is? He's never even seen Jesus. He was blind the last time Jesus spoke to him. He heard, it, literally, this is his experience. He's standing on the street corner, maybe laying down. A man rubs mud in his eyes and said, if you'll go bathe in this one puddle of water, your sight will come back. And this blind guy's like, well, it's better than anything I have going on. So he goes and does it. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's not this great disciple, this follower. He doesn't understand the theology and the doctrine of the church. He was in need. Jesus met that need, and now he's pretty excited about that. And yet, there's a class of people who are immediately offended because this doesn't fit into their worldview. This is not, this is their God fits in this box. He's stayed in this box for several thousand years, and now there's this man claiming to have been blind. Here's the conclusion that these people reach they decide that the guy is a liar. That it's been a long con since he was a baby and he could never, he was never actually blind. If you can believe that. That's the way that they rationalize the miracle that Jesus has done. Not that he was healed, not that maybe something happened they can't explain, but that probably the guy was never really blind. He was just lazy and he didn't want to work, and now he's feeling differently about it, and so he took his dark sunglasses off, and now we think he can see again. It's crazy to me that the links that people will go to rationalize what they have seen Jesus do. The man says, I don't know where Jesus is. They bring him in front of the, what they call the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees. And then if you have your Bible open, look back at verse 14. It's a little note here that's important. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Jesus gets in trouble a lot on the Sabbath because everybody around him doesn't know what the Sabbath is really supposed to be about. And he, he does a lot of healing on the Sabbath. He does a lot of helping people on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are always on his back about that. Because they're very legalistic that the Sabbath is a day where you shouldn't do anything ever. And I guess spitting on the ground and making mud is considered work in their world. And so Jesus has somehow infringed upon their sensibilities. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again ask the man how he has received his sight. Notice that again. They don't believe him the first time. And the man said to them, he put mud on my eyes, (laughs) he's so straightforward, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. I don't know anything else than that. I don't, there wasn't like a special incantation. And he said to them, he did these things. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he can't be because he doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? If he doesn't follow all of God's laws, he must only be God's enemy. That's the only category we can put him in. But others asked a good question. They said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among the Pharisees. That's important. Because at the end of Jesus' life, some of the Pharisees have come around. Joseph of Arimathea, the man in in whose tomb Jesus is buried, was himself a Pharisee. Nicodemus, a man Jesus encountered in John 3, is present at Jesus' burial and very likely is a believer by that point. So not everybody in the religious elite class is wrong the whole time. But there's a division, and so they come back to the blind man. These are like the smartest guys in town, and they keep assaulting this man who simply wants to go outside and look at the trees... And they are attacking him. So they say again, what do you say about him? If he opened your eyes, what would you say that he is? Like, give us your theological treatise on Jesus. And the guy's like, reaching for straws here. He's like, uh, he is a prophet. He, at very least, he speaks for God. This poor man. It only gets worse. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. They did not believe that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight. So they've discounted him. He must be a liar, even though he's a walking miracle. So they go get his parents. They ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Can you imagine Mr. and Mrs., whatever their last name is, are just at home doing normal stuff, and an angry mob comes and brings their son. Their son can see, first of all. This is the first that they're hearing of that, and they can't even celebrate it because they're attacking these people about whether or not he's a liar. So they're just in their doorway, and they, they say to them, we know that this is our son. We certainly know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's a grown-up. Even his mom and dad put the onus back on him again. Why don't you ask him? And the guy's going, no, they already did that. They've asked me a lot of times. This is not going anywhere. He will speak for himself. Look at verse 22. Here's why. A little insight for you from John. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that they were to be put out of the synagogue. You and I don't have a synagogue. We probably don't know what that means. That would be as if when you showed up today to be a part of our church service, there was a list at the door and a bouncer. And that bouncer said, if your name's not on the list, you're not coming in. Now, some of you guys, that would confirm your worst suspicions about the church anyway, and maybe you would almost even be happy that that happened because now you'd be justified and sort of walking away from church for good. But in a society where your religious attendance dictates your value in culture, like whether or not you are legally alive or dead is connected to whether you can attend the synagogue, To be cast out is to be considered dead. It's to be written out of the collective will of society. And so this man and woman are so scared of the ruling religious elite class in Jerusalem that they dodge the question. They won't even answer it, honestly. They put it back on their son for him to answer himself. So for the second time, look at verse 24. They called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that the man is a sinner. Jesus is a sinner. And he answered them, he says, (laughs) whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing that I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, again, this is like the fourth time, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I love this answer. This is snark, like times 100. He says, I have told you already and you will not listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's a burn, you guys. I know you don't speak Greek, and we're not in, yeah, that's like him going, oh, you're hanging around our team all the time. You want to be on this team? Is that why? You guys trying to follow Jesus too? Verse 28, and they reviled him. They hated him in their hearts, and then they spoke to him as if they did. They said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, this Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered and said, why, this is an amazing thing. I think he probably said it a little bit meaner than that, a little cruder. But he's saying, wow, to them, basically. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? Are we really having this conversation? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now he's preaching to them. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him and said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And then they cast him out. They did to him what his parents were scared to death of. They put him on the blacklist because he hurt their feelings. That's really why. He offended their sensibilities. He confronted their own wickedness. He denied them an easy pass to push Jesus away. He had faith because he had had a real experience with God and it got him kicked out of the religious establishment. And I'll just say to you as a side note, this isn't even in my notes this morning, If following Jesus gets you kicked out of church, follow Jesus. Get kicked out of church. That's the way to do it. I don't think it usually will. Find a good church that wants you to follow Jesus. But if it looks like this for you, you stick with the Christ. This man gets kicked out because he is willing to take responsibility for the role that God has played in his life. He won't lie about it. His mom and dad dodged it like cowards, but their own son, who can now see, refuses to do that. And now the Pharisees have kicked him out. He is dead to the other Israelites. All of his neighbors, all the people who used to help him get around the city, the folks who would toss a couple of dollars in his cup every day, he is dead to them. He's an outcast. And for what? Because he honestly shared his experience of healing at Jesus' hands. And where has that left him now? Isolated, alone. Sure, it's great that he can see, but is that really worth the cost of becoming a pariah? Thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Jesus is not done. Look at verse 35. Word gets to Jesus that this man has been accosted, probably across a couple of days, and that they had cast him out of the synagogue. I think Jesus is really interested in that category of people. He seems to find people who get cast out of the synagogue pretty fast after that happens. And he pulls them in and he says, you can still be a part of what I've got going on. Having found the man, he said, and remember you guys, the context is so important here, this man who can see has never seen Jesus before. He does not know what Jesus looks like. So that's part of why this conversation is gonna go the way that it does. This story gives me chills. He says, to the man who can now see, Jesus is speaking, do you believe in the Son of Man, one of the names for the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself? The, the seeing man who was blind answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He doesn't realize that he's speaking with Jesus. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. It's me. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He hit his knees right there. I believe. I believe. I can't believe. The only thing I can't believe is how nobody else believes. This is insane to me, God. Of course I believe. And Jesus said this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And then verse 40 Those meddling Pharisees have to stick their nose back in it again. Some of the Pharisees nearby, they're probably following this man around to make sure he doesn't go into any of the synagogues outside of Jerusalem. They're bullying him. They overhear Jesus speaking and they say, Are we also blind? And Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if you couldn't see, you wouldn't be accountable for being able to see. But now that you say we see, now that you insist that you know what's right, now that you say that you know better, now that you've held up your life, your standard, your idea over and against mine, you are absolutely accountable for that decision. There is a marked and significant difference between a person who genuinely does not understand and a person who has been near enough Jesus to hear and see and touch and experience and still says what I've got going on is better than what he's got going on. It's more valuable to me. It's worth more to me. It's worth rejecting him to keep my kingdom. I like that Jesus burns the Pharisees here a little bit. I think it's fun. He didn't go after them on their own. They came to him. He's simply responding to them in a similar way that they attacked him. But he sees this healed man, and then he stands up for him. Not only does he heal this guy, but he protects him. He guards him. He shelters this man from his oppressors, from the bullies that want to disqualify what God has done in his life. And he tells the Pharisees exactly who they are. So here's the question then for us. When we read a story like this, we have to ask ourselves, who are we? Where do we fit in this? Are we along with Jesus kind of in the background, one of the unnamed disciples watching everything play out? Are some of us the man on the corner begging, waiting for God to come to us to see us in the midst of our hurt, our need, our blindness, our pain? Are we the Pharisees? who have become so rigidly attached to the religious establishment that we have reached a point where Jesus is no longer compatible with our Christianity? Have we built a new system of checks and balances and yeses and nos and do's and don'ts that would actually move us away from sensing and following the spirit of Jesus in our lives? Or are we the parents who are just trying to fit in and fly under the radar and find a way to continue to play the religious game? We're not all in, but we're not all out and when a time comes for someone to need someone to stand up for them, we say, that's probably their own business right there of age. They're an adult. They can handle it. They can speak for themselves. As I see it, Jesus presents three categories of people between John 9 and John 19, where we began. First, there are those who have seen him and believe that he is Lord. So if you aren't really into church, Lord is a word that I want to explain to you because it shows up in the Bible a lot. It, can, it means two things. It means first, Savior, Or to use Old Testament language, Christ, the Messiah, the office of the one who would come to deliver Israel and by extension deliver the world. And it also means master or rabbi or king. You kind of pick your uh, ruling class word of choice there. But essentially, it's the idea that, God, I'm giving all of myself to you. You have my allegiance no matter what. And you deserve that because you've saved me. That's the twofold meaning of Lord. Thomas and Mary, who we read about in John 19 and 20, are people who saw Jesus. They saw him with their eyes, and that experience convinced them that he was the Messiah who had come to right the wrongs between God and humanity, and they were comfortable with this God being their ruler. Of course he would be their ruler. He was going to fix everything that was broken. He was their boss. He was their king. He was their master. And for some of us, we are in this category. We have seen Jesus clearly, as clearly as anybody can in 2022. For probably a very few of you, but some, you may have had a dream at some point that was life-changing, a vision. I know within the Muslim community, this is very common. For Christ to come to people in their sleep and call them to himself and give them a vision of him that they would never receive from their study of the Quran. For some of us, we've seen Jesus jump off the pages of the Gospels. Simply in reading, being in study with other believers, there's been this moment where he becomes undeniably real to us. And we would say we have all the evidence that we need. Or we've maybe just sensed a miraculous healing or the power of the Spirit at work in us or those around us. We have more evidence than we could ever need and we are all in. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. You're in the right place. We're glad to have you. The second category is those who have seen, excuse me, those who have not seen and still believe. This is the people that Jesus talks about in John 20 being blessed, that there's something sort of particular or specific in store for you if this is your experience. You may have cried out to God without knowing what to say or how to say it. You may have grown up in a home or a family of origin that valued God or valued the Bible. Maybe you picked up enough along the way that Although you might not consider yourself a church person at this point, you know deep in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. You're still sort of trying to sort the rest of that out. Maybe he healed you. Maybe he delivered you. Maybe his word has proven true for you. Some of us in this category may not feel that we are able or ready to trust a church yet. Or again, maybe we did and something happened and now we won't ever again we say, but God's working on that in us. Maybe we don't feel that we can trust or follow a pastor or elders, but we know that Jesus is authentic, because like the blind man, we were laying in the metaphorical road, begging the universe or whatever our idea of God was to have mercy on us, and instead of some distant cosmic force or karma or whatever we expected, Jesus showed up. Jesus answered our call out to the powers that be. He himself personally arrived and said, I am yours and you are mine and I will heal you. Come along with me. That deliverance, that love when no one else would love us draws us to him. My friend, if that is you today and you are here and you are giving church a try again or maybe for the first time, welcome. You're in the right place. We want you to be here. Jesus wants you to be here. Jesus tells those of us who have seen and believed that there is a blessing for those who have not yet seen and yet have still believed those who are working out that faith, those who are finding a way to put words to their experience, their feelings, their concept of who God is. If you will keep looking like the man in John 9, keep telling people who want to interrogate and assault you with theological tests to pass or fail, keep telling them what you know. Here's where I was, here's what he did, here's who he is. That's all I know. I was healed. I don't know how. I didn't heal myself. I didn't give God the formula and have him execute it. I certainly didn't check any religious boxes. I was wrong. Now I'm right. He made me that way. Stick to that and Jesus will take you far. The last category is those who have seen and do not believe. So we have those who have seen and have believed, those who have not seen and yet have faith, And those finally who have seen, who have been given evidence and proximity and opportunity, and yet still reject the sun. In our story, categorically, these are the Pharisees. These are the religious elite, though, oftentimes in 2022, it's not the religious elite who so much occupy this category, it's the cultural elite, it's the intellectual elite. It's those of us who would prefer to lean on systems that are more empirical than faith-based. We want evidence. We want proof. We want science to jive with everything the Bible says. And until it does, we'll stick with the side of what we can measure instead of what requires faith from us. This one's harder. It's trickier because it's easy to diagnose the first two categories. When you meet somebody and they want to be a part of Jesus' family, you can typically tell if they've come to Christ by way of their own faithful family of origin, a church, a youth group, a children's class, people who were close by and loved on them, or if they found Jesus because Jesus found them first. You can feel that difference, and they're both beautiful stories, and they both bring us to Christ, which is the point. But it's tough to diagnose one who has seen and yet does not believe, because often that comes with a mask. It comes with a lot of skills that we gain. We learn how to sound healthy, we learn how to sound Christian, we learn how to sound educated and right. And we play this game inside ourselves and that's really what it comes down to. Only you and God and your community can really know if your belief is genuine or not. Some of us have seen clearly who God is and what he can do. Our parents have been faithful in our lives, our friends have spoken clearly, maybe your peers at work or your spouse are constantly badgering you to take God seriously. Maybe you've even had the experience of your children growing up and being serious about Christ and that's reignited a curiosity in you or an interest level and why why would anybody want to follow Jesus? For some of us, we just won't believe. We just, we can't. We We can't find within ourselves the ability to lay down our own kingdom. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's that sort of indoctrination of everything needing to be measurable and empirical for us to buy into it. But we just don't buy it. We shrug off the genuine redemption of the people around us by calling it emotional fanaticism or blind faith or we think it's indoctrination in play. Like the doubters in John chapter 9, we would more quickly believe that someone has pulled a long con over on us than believe that God might actually change a person from the inside out. So we pick. We prod, we doubt, we rationalize, we stay firmly in the camp of those who've been given more than enough evidence to believe but refuse to open themselves to faith, to trust. Here's the problem, my friends. For those of us who have seen and don't believe according to what Jesus just said, our guilt remains. And not just in the cosmic sense, I understand that if you're firmly in this category, you probably aren't interested in hearing somebody talk to you about hell and redemption and eternity again. I believe those things are true and real. But here's what I'll tell you about your actual lived experience today, a thing that I know that you care about, a kingdom that you are actively working to build. You are absolutely guilty inside. And you know this about yourself. Between your body and your mind and your spirit, you know that you've done wrong. Many of us are motivated simply by the fact that we have wronged somebody sometime and we're trying as hard as we can to put more good deeds in the cosmic scales of our lives than the bad deeds that we've already committed. We run from these things. We can feel it. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits respond with anxiety. We lay in bed at night reliving the worst days of our lives, the things that people have done to us and then the things that we have done because of that to other people. We have been both the wounder and the wounded. And we try to medicate it, we want to patch those holes in ourselves with self-help and positive ideas. We want to affirm to ourselves that we are becoming someone that we're not, yet the evidence continually comes back and flies in the face of that idea. We aren't actually changing into better people, and we know it. We gain more resources, we gain more influence, we gain the ability to help more people, maybe we do to a certain degree, but our inner person is the same and we can feel it. My question is for you. Is it worth living the rest of your life protecting that wounded, wicked version of yourself? Do you always want to be that eight-year-old kid cowering in the corner inside the body of a grown man or a grown woman until your body goes in the ground? Because you don't have to be. That's the bottom line for these Pharisees. The reason that there's division among them when they see this man healed is because I think some of them would like to be healed too. They would like to know that there is a possibility of a person being impacted by the divine in a way that is transformative. They would like to live in a world where that can happen to somebody sometime. And yet, they are so scared of stepping out of line. They're so afraid of laying down all these things they fought so hard for that they stay where they are. They never take that step. Does Jesus wanna make you right with God? Yes, he does, but if you can't believe that yet, believe this, Jesus also just wants to make you right. He wants to fix what's wrong. Your walls can go away as soon as you allow Jesus in. If you will allow him to reach your inner person, he will heal you. It's what he does. You don't have to wake up tomorrow the same way you did today. You can be different. You can be made new. That's the promise on offer from Jesus every single time. It's not that he'll make your life better, that he'll make you smarter or more able to wield a theological sword at your enemies. It's that he'll make you new. He'll rebuild you from the ground up in his image, a brand new way to be human. That's what's available to you. The kind of thing that you'll never find anywhere else. You don't have to be at war with God. You don't have to struggle anymore with the crushing mental weight of living life on your own, the isolation that comes with independence. You can be healed from those things. For those of us who have seen but have not yet believed, the opportunity is still there. As the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, today can be the day of salvation for you. You can be set free from following yourself. You can be set free from the ideologies of the world, from the wicked cycles of turning you into a commodity and then making you turn other people into a commodity and nothing ever really gets better and maybe you have more money than you used to, but you're the same broken person underneath that bank account. There's more for you. There's life for you. This is what we are all about at this church. Jesus, alone. And today can be your day. And I'll just say this, I'm going to volunteer on behalf of somebody else who probably brought you today or invited you. The friend or neighbor who told you that this would be a great church to spend Easter at is not a seminary-trained theologian, okay? I'm not at all telling you that they've got their apologetics nailed down and they're going to answer every little question you have about Christianity. But they are a person who has seen the Son of Man and believed. They know him as Lord and you can ask them about that. That is the absolute best starting place. If there's a little bit of a crack beginning to appear in this sort of rigid self-defense that you've put up for years and years and years, and the idea of just opening yourself to the reality of God, of Jesus, of healing, of a future, of life, tap that person on the shoulder today. They would love to do very simply what the blind man did, tell you who they were, Jesus came along, here's how they're different. That story's available for you. And if you want to, you can start that journey today. You can follow Jesus. The invitation is open. He said, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. It is within arm's reach. All you gotta do is come in. And that's what we want for you. I hope you will. I pray that you will. I wanna pray that for you now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Easter morning. Thank you for redemption, for newness, for a world in which there can be a restart. A world in which things that are dead can be made alive again. That the greatest final status of any living creature can be undone by you. The finality of death, the permanence of death, the looming, gaping, yawning hole that is death at the end of all of our collective human timelines can be defeated. I pray, God, that the appeal of that would be clear today. That we would not be people manipulated by emotion, that the fear of what's coming wouldn't drive us negatively towards something that we're not sure we want, but the offer of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace, acceptance, unconditional love for life would bring us in. We believe, God, that it is your compassion that draws us into repentance. Please be magnetic today. Please, God, let the gravitational force of your love pull stronger than it ever has. We beg you to do this. It's our will, God. We believe that it is your will. We are in sync with you. We love you. We are asking you to do this supernaturally. Pull us up out of ourselves and into you. Father, we love you. We pray these things, believing that you hear us and that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.